and welcome to episode 126 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, Mark's got takes aplenty on the Ballad of Joe Spider-Man, man who dies all the time to die again in Hitman 2, finally some respite for X Bong Ripper 420, and our book club this week talks about a game from a time where you didn't have to charge your phone every 10 minutes, it's Snake, let's start the show. Cast episode 126 from your friends at linktothecast.eu available on all your favorite podcasting platforms be it apple Podcasts, soundcloud podcast addict or stitcher i am your party host dave ryan i'm joined on the line as i am every week by the platforming prodigy that is mark robinson mark how are you marquees on the pod say marquees on the pod whoop, whoop. yeah uh we had a week off didn't we because because yeah we yeah, just yeah, it was schedules. one of those it was one of those, like, usually we can make something work where either we can shift a day or Jack is around or we get, you know, the odd time we get a special guest around. Uh, but this was just one of those weeks where, hey, look, you can tell by the the lack of regularity of output of the popcorn social <laughs> of late that uh, schedules have just gotten more complex because... Because we're grown-ups. Well, my backup recording days of, of old, my traditional recording days... Um, they just don't exist like, anymore. Like, we, we usually record on a Wednesday. Um, and my backup days are normally Thursday and Friday, but Thursday and Friday I work now. And yep. uh, thankfully, when all is going well, I'm home quite early on a Thursday. We're recording this on Thursday, so I had plenty of time to put together the agenda and uh, test my new recording setup where hopefully we will have uh, uh, I'm not saying no technical difficulties because we still record over Skype so there's that <laughs> uh, but shall we say more intermittent uh, less regular uh, technical difficulties than we've we've been accustomed to the last few months since you moved out my friend yeah but- I should I should also point out as well uh, live production uh, scheduling over the the air I'm basically unavailable for the next two weeks as uh as my my partner in crime at work is is away so i should point out to you now that uh you, you may <laughs> need to get your hands cheers on man appreciate yeah. that yeah you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> okay well the boy lazel if i haven't caught co- if i haven't contacted him by the time he listens to this show you're up pal <laughs> um right okay but we did uh, something that's uh, almost as rare as an error-free recording session, Mark. Uh, we saw each other in in the flesh. We did. On Saturday. All too briefly, I will say. Yeah. Considering well, I was, he was quite working, late. so. Yeah. Uh, getting to those, we were at uh, the OTT show, four-year anniversary, up in the National Stadium. And the problem with those Saturday OTT shows going forward now is that I don't finish work until half five on a Saturday. And I'm just one... It's the one day where I, I, I literally can't even knock off a minute early because yeah. it's the one it's the one shift I have that's completely immovable. Um, and it, like there was a very frantic run up because even the other two the other two buildings that OTT run up in Dublin are much more convenient to get to from Newbridge. Uh, like for the Shore Road, I would just need to get one bus and then the Lewis stops right outside. The oh, Shore yeah, Road. That, that's that's the easiest one by far. 
Oh, by far. Yeah. And even the Tivoli, I could just get the Lewis a couple of stops further to James's Hospital and walk about 10 minutes. Um, but the National Stadium being on the South Circuit Road is a fucking pain in the hoop to get to. Um, especially if you're looking to get there for a particular time. Now, as it happened, I did make it in right after the like welcome to OTT speech. Um, so I didn't miss a moment of the action. I mean, I did just want to point out, I did save you a seat and everything, and you yeah, just you screwed on I, the other side, and like, all right, whatever, it's fine. I sat down, and it was kind of a thing where I was explaining it to you, is that I was wearing my transition lenses, which when there's bright lights, they turn into sunglasses. So my lenses were kind of dark coming into a dark room because of the, the bright strobe lights, and um, I, I was just like, I couldn't really see I couldn't really make out everybody and I didn't want to be just staring at strangers. So just like the first person that I recognize that's waving at me, I'll go over towards them and our friends Johnny and Lee had a seat in between them saved for me. So just like glasses. And, that's and, what we're going with. Yeah. And I didn't even see you then for like another 45 minutes after that, maybe. <laughs> and I saw you over the other side and then came to, to, to have the band switch you at intermission. But uh, how did you find for your anniversary? Now, you're not a, a regular OTT attendee like myself, where I actually don't think I've missed a Dublin show in the entirety of 2018 yet. Um, but actually, I know I missed one. I missed one because of the snow. But uh, yeah, you, you tend to come to either stadium shows or if there's a particular match that's on the card or a particular guy that's on the card that you're no, like, oh, I, I, I tend to come when you say, hey, I have a ticket. Do you want it? That's usually yeah. the way this I, goes. I should just do like I did with you, a much cheaper version of what I did with WrestleMania in Dallas, where I just message you and go, look, I've already bought you a ticket, yeah. so come or be a dickhead, whichever you want. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, so, it was it was a good show. Um, there were a few more of the kind of younger talents, younger prospects um, who were in slightly more prominent positions. So it was good to see some of them um, and certainly like some interesting matchups. We've seen them uh, working alongside the, the new Japan talent. Um, but I didn't even like properly check the, the lineup until the, uh, like the day of. So I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to the OTT show tonight. I was like, Oh, Satoshi Kojima's on. I've never seen him before. That's pretty cool. Um, and I just about remembered friggin' Lij were going to be there, so uh, that that helped to uh, to get me in in the mood for some uh, professional wrestling. But yeah, the show was um, considering. I know the stadium shows have uh, had a tendency to be quite lengthy and not finishing yeah. on time. But... Lengthy and like typically on average, if I was one to do star ratings for OTT shows, I don't think they deliver half as consistently as Shore Road or the Tivoli. Yeah, yeah, um, and like considering that there are nine matches on the card, uh, that's that's always like you know unless you've got a squash match in there or one of the the, the matches is just an angle. Um, you can worry that it may go pretty long, but it didn't out. Outstay is welcome. Uh, I think the matches, yeah. the the pace of the card was was very well put together. Um, I think based on what they said, they only overran by about 30, 40 minutes. So not not too bad by their standards. No, uh, and like considering that the main event was Will Osprey uh, Volta, like I had been there all night until that match was over because that mm -hmm. was uh, was pretty friggin spectacular. And, yeah, uh, I I can't remember I. 
I'm not actually sure if I've seen Volsa before. I feel like that may have been my first time seeing him. Um, uh, yeah, because I don't think he debuted in progress until after you moved oh, here. Oh, I was, I was long gone. Uh, and you've time. never been to WXW with no. me. And you certainly haven't been to an OTT show he's been on because he only yeah. debuted in like June. No, so uh, unless he was... Uh, I don't think he was at uh, any of the shows we were at in Dallas. I'm pretty sure it was my first time no, seeing him. No, no. My, my yeah, my first time seeing him live was at sixteen carat last year. Yeah. Um. So yeah, doubtful for if you had seen him, but he's he's quite the specimen. He is quite the presence indeed, and uh, yeah, just him and Osprey had a spectacular match. Like uh, Osprey is is quite easily one of the top five wrestlers in the world at the moment, and I am I am. So curious to see him try and get a four-star match out of Taichi, but that's a different conversation for a different day. But, uh, yeah, I, overall, I, I have nothing to complain about. Uh, I think that um, the main event was was an incredible match. Nothing else was anything that I, I felt was particularly mind-blowing, but uh, it was an easy watch from beginning to end. And yeah, yeah I, I, th- I think everything was was solid. And then the the main event, or I would argue, the last two matches were pretty great because I have a very soft spot for Tim Thatcher and uh, Tim Thatcher Minoru Suzuki was quite a spectacle uh, to, to witness. The, those two men just stretch and beat the shit out of each other for a while, and perhaps the stiffest uppercut I've ever seen in a wrestling match thrown by one Timothy Thatcher in that match. It was a snug match. Uh, yeah, and I, I particularly like, like I think uh, that the team, the incredibly charismatic team of Shane Strickland, Flamita, and Bandido did as good a job as anyone of getting a uh, a good match out of House Show Naito. Um, <laughs> and I will say, I actually think myself and Johnny were talking about this, and like I know the non wrestling people were nearly done, so just just hang tough, guys. Um, the non wrestling people won't care, but. I myself, Johnny and Lee were talking about this, and I think that Destino he hit on Flamita is like the best Destino I've ever seen. It was fucking amazing, wasn't it? <laughs> like it's as close because that move is very contrived, and I think that's as close to a Destino out of nowhere as you're ever going to get in a wrestling match. Uh, and I think in future he should only hit it on Lucha guys, um, because Flamita was like, "We're getting this fucking thing done quick." Um, and I also then, so you went to that show. That was a good show. Oh, special mention as well to Scotty Davis uh, versus Dunkzilla Mark Davis in the Battle of the Davises. Uh, I very much enjoyed that match, and Scotty Davis is, is quite a one to watch going into 2019. Um, I also went to a show on Sunday that you did not attend, the 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 women's show Defiant 2, that had uh, a couple of just banger matches on the pre-show, including Shane Strickland and Bandito. Shane Strickland is one of my favorite wrestlers in the world. I will never be 120th as cool as that man is, and I'm okay with that. I just have to live with it. Um, and then, yeah, the women's show was fucking out of this world insane. And if you had told me like six or seven years ago that there would be a, a like a three, you know, two to three hundred rabid fans for an all women's show that would go as crazy uh, as they did on that Sunday and ha- and that the women would put on a show that arguably was as good, if not better than the stadium show the night before. I would have laughed at you. But hey, that's that's what I witnessed. Um, So like it's it's a good time to enjoy the independent wrestling, Mark. Yeah. Um, Can we talk about Venom? Uh, oh, yes, this wasn't on the, the agenda, but I saw this as well. Because 
Okay. This fucking film, right? Uh, I, I, all I'm going to say um, is that Venom is a bad film. However, Venom is also a dumb film. However, I would be lying if I said that I came out of the cinema and I didn't feel highly entertained by what I'd seen, whether for the right or wrong reasons. Um, and I think you put it best that um, if this film had come out, I don't know, 20 years ago, like at least pre-MCU, um, that this film, I don't know, may have been... I want to say, like, better received, but, like, not as kind of viewed in light of, you know, what can be done with a superhero film. Um, I, yeah, well, just a, a dumb fucking film. Yeah, I, I think the line I came out with at the end of this movie was, that's the best film of 2001 that I saw this year. <laughs> uh, it's a thing where, in a world, like you said, pre-MCU, or, like, when the best superhero movie we had was the first X-Men movie and the first Spider-Man movie, I think everybody really, really enjoyed this. It definitely is something ripped out of, you know, that like 90s period of comics where everything was about muscle upon muscle upon muscle and dark, creepy drawing. Um, like if you didn't know that Todd McFarlane created Venom, y you would know by the end of it. Um, it very like a lot of the trappings of Todd McFarlane, that movie. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of go along the same lines as you, Mark. I, I, I don't. I don't think it was a good movie at all. No. But but I I I really liked it. I it it I don't know what happens like halfway through whether they changed writers or they just went, you know what? Not sure about how this film is going. We need to change something because uh, like the second half of this film, um Tom Hardy and Venom, they develop this almost kind of like buddy cop slash bromance type relationship that um that i was not expecting and you know my my knowledge around venom and the, the lore of venom is, is not particularly strong um but of the directions that i imagined that uh, this film could go uh the the relationship that they formed between tom hardy and venom uh, it was it was unexpected yeah when they're just sassing each other and bickering, yeah, uh, I, I really do enjoy that. Like the bitter is like, "What's wrong with you?" And he's like, "I got a parasite." And the Venom voice goes, "Parasite." <laughs> um, that kind of stuff is good. The little back and forth they have going. Um, and Tom Hardy remains like he has this as a speaker. I wouldn't say he's charismatic, but like he has this kind of physical charisma about him. You know yeah, that like absolutely, he's yeah. he's he's very interesting to watch. Um, and like, I, I think with another actor in that role, we probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Uh, and I think if it was a little more of an earnest film, we wouldn't have take, we wouldn't have liked it as much. I think the fact that the, the people making this film seemed self-aware as to what Venom is as a character and didn't try to give it any deeper meaning, uh, probably helped out. And there's only so much you can do in in 2018 with like an anti-hero comic book movie um you know we we saw back in the early 2000s the difficulty that marvel had getting the punisher off the ground as a concept um it, 
superhero something about like superhero comics sometimes are fine when you're doing it from the villain's point of view but something about superhero movies it it's much more difficult and i think maybe because cinema audiences look for that that character to find common virtues and strengths within uh, to relate to um and the fact that a lot of them seem to be these kind of spin-offs that are, are kind of like <sighs> let's just say the b team of a like of a of a movie studio can be put on them sometimes like for example suicide squad um but the less said about that movie the better but yeah i fucking just like i i i was fucking wildly entertained for an hour and a half and two you hours. know you know there are other people out there that are going to claim um that this is the best superhero film that tom hardy has ever been in um cause... yeah it's not though because there are those <laughs> yeah. people out there that, and I don't think that Dark Knight Rises is um, brilliant by any means. I I have my issues with that film, but uh, there are some, there are those out there that uh, just kind of swear by it being a terrible film. And, I've always considered that film. If that film had come out before Dark Knight, everyone would think it was a masterpiece. Yeah, but. It, it, its greatest crime is that it was the third film, and Dark Knight just completely set the expectations a mile too high uh, you know actually i and i will say um because it is my least favorite of that trilogy because i do think that i think batman begins is a, is a very underrated film oh yeah it's very good yeah um but no there, there are those that just swear that you know the nolan films in general are trash which is i mean sure i guess everyone has to have an opinion um but yeah venom just i i went in with with no expectations so you know it wasn't hard for it to be matched but uh yeah. but even still I was, it wasn't boring and i guess that's all i can ask for yeah i'd absolutely like for example go see it sooner than i'd see the first two thor movies ever again um or the or fantastic pretty, four film yeah or pretty much any of the the dc universe stuff yeah um, yeah, yeah, that's like Venom. It's it's quite a thing. I don't really understand why I enjoyed it, but I did. So there you go. Um, shall we finally get onto some video games, Got my him. friend? Let's do it. Okay, playing this week. Hey, check it out! I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy Two. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Mark, you played a video game this week. I have been playing um, uh, quite a lot of a video game for about the last two weeks. Uh, I think, yeah, it must be since the the last time we recorded together and this show, uh, I started and finished Spider-Man. So Mm. that's good because, yeah, because Red Dead is out soon. So I was like, well, there's my motivation to finish this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Spider-Man. And, and it's a nice big one out of the way before uh, a certain very stressful recording period over Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Spider-Man is, or as I like to call it uh, at certain points, Arkham Asylum featuring Spider-Man, is uh, a game that... I'm going to get my, my negatives out of the way first, because I, I, how I usually do it when we do the big games... Um, a lot of the critique that I had, a lot of the criticism that I had for God of War is apparent here in the, the AAA open world design of games in 2018. Um, the, the side quests that are there, which, you know, side quests, uh, as, as a 
concept is, you know, this thing that doesn't have to be done. It's there um, to add like more experience to a game or more things to do if you choose to do them. But because a lot of the time now, um, a lot of these side mission side objectives are attached to a, a skill tree, which um, if you don't want to fill up means that later parts of the game, if you want a challenge of trying to do later parts of the game without all of these upgrades, sure, go for it. Um, but the, the skill tree which is attached to all of these optional um, side quests mean really that they're not that optional and you probably just have to do them in order to upgrade and enhance um, your skills and abilities. Uh, and that's a, a common theme that does annoy me, but hey, there it is. Um, most, some, no, most of the side quests and optional content didn't particularly interest me. Uh, flying around the city catching pigeons, I wouldn't classify it as a, a fun time. Um, the Taskmaster task challenges were at least a little bit more enjoyable. Um, but where it did piss me off is that you have kind of what feels like three um, uh, skin swaps of the same thing of, you know, at different points there'll be um, a, a, a red triangle and an explanation mark that appears and it means that a robbery of some description is going on or there's, there's some activity that's going on that needs Spider-Man's assistance. Um, and there are um, different uh, things that are happening. Whether it's um, there's a, a prison, uh, there's a prison breakout that happens yeah. at that point, and I think there's like five or six variations. Yeah, there's a I few, counted. and then there's the, these skin swaps between the saber agents, the prisoners, um, the the mm. demon people, and it just by the time you get to the last one or the last like oh there are all of these things on the map that need handling. I was like, I'm I'm close to the end, so I'm just gonna do them. But it felt very lazy at that point. Um, so that, yeah, that felt very much like a, a a padding the game out with content that just didn't add anything to the experience for me. Yeah, um, I I think maybe like there was a missing step in the strategy behind those because what I found was. I wasn't bored or sick of them the way I was doing them, where it was like, I'd do a story mission, then I'd do a couple of those, then I'd do a story mission, then I'd do a couple of those. The only time during my experience where I got a little bit like, oh, fuck's sake, like this is kind of like a little bit repetitive, is at the end of the game where I'd beaten all the game and all the Taskmaster challenges, and I was left with just a bunch of, because to, to get the Platinum, you need to clear out all those uh, randomly occurring crimes in every district in the city. Yeah. So I was just doing 30 or 40 of those in a row to clear out everywhere at the end of the game. Yeah. And that's when it got a little bit repetitive. See, I, I pretty much, as soon as um, something was available on the map for me to see that I could do, I would just go and do it. So I spent the first four or five hours of the game um, doing a load of the optional content. Uh, which meant that by the end, when before the last mission, I'd actually already done most of it other than a couple of the, the Sable agent bits. Um, so I kind of did it in reverse to you. Um, yeah. and... See, I, I like with the Sable agents, like I like the, the like the headquarters, outposts, hideout missions. Yeah, because... they were fine. Because that's just doing the, the like, you're just doing um, waves of the combat and the combat feels really good and 
the way they've designed the AI in that is like even if the settings are reasonably similar and even if it's six waves of, of Sable guys and you've just done six waves of Sable guys, the fight will kind of play out differently. Uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. So that never bothered me, but it's the ones like where it's you know, I have to chase a car again, bring the car to a stop, and yeah, it it gets a little know. bit tedious after a while because you're just yeah. you know going around the city in each of the districts, uh, doing that thing five times. So, um, so that was an issue. Uh, my other issue as well is, as just mentioned earlier, um, there are times where this game borrows liberally from the Arkham Asylum playbook, um, and you know, Arkham Asylum is fantastic in every single way because it's a game that's designed around Batman, where at times this is adding features for a game that should be about Spider-Man. And um, it's it's like a blessing and a curse in that the, the combat for Spider-Man is, is so tight and so uh, just an enjoyable experience that when and I get... And fluid as well. Like, very fluid, absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. The best word to use. That when it throws me into these forced stealth sections um because there are there are different like if you need to take over a base and there are like five waves of enemies the first wave of enemies you can do um however you want whether you want to try and take the stealth approach and not get caught so you can take that first wave out before you ever get attacked and i I'm, i like that. that that i'm fine with um because it usually takes place in these bigger more expansive areas where you can swing around to to find a point that works for you so it's kind of stealth, but you're still moving around like Spider-Man. But there are um, these four stealth sections that usually take place in slightly uh, more contained, um, claustrophobic type areas. And it's just, it's annoying because you don't have the option of just, oh, fuck it, I'm Spider-Man, I'm going to jump down and take everything out. Uh, and it's just not that fun to do. Um, and that's the bits of the game where it's slowed down for me and... Um, it's just it was a design choice that I wouldn't have done, and I can see why they went for it. Um, maybe they felt it was necessary to change the pacing up a little bit, but I I wasn't a fan of you know those. Basically, I'm hanging from a gargoyle like a Batman. I'm gonna mm. uh, swing down, grab whatever enemy, and bring it back up. Uh, just it just it didn't click for me. Um, but those two major criticisms criticisms out of the way. Uh, as mentioned, I think the combat is is just superb. Um, I, I never got tired of jumping into a large group of, of enemies, and certainly towards the, the latter part of the game when you've got all the different gadgets and how you can combine them to take out just a whole group of people uh, in in like ten seconds, where like earlier on it would take a lot longer. Uh, and the way that you can just kind of chain combos together and launch people up in the air, take them out, use your uh, web abilities. It's just, yeah, it's every... It's very dynamic. It's really dynamic. Like, every way you can think of taking an opponent on or getting out of a situation, like, it's all put there. And, like, yeah. the idea of a rocket being launched at you, seeing it the last second, flinging out the webs, swinging it around, taking out some guy that's uh, five feet to the left of the eye. It's, it's super, super satisfying. Um, from beginning yeah, and to I, I appreciate how it doesn't tell you in those combat scenarios. Like, this is what you should do. Um, it It's kind of like, well, you know what your skills are. Fucking just go do it. Take these fuckers down. Yeah, exactly. There's very few types of enemies where there's only... I can't even think of any, really, where there's only one way to get them. You know what I mean? Even those guys with the shield where the game will direct you that you should, like, 
um, dodge a strike and slide under them. There are a couple of different ways to get those guys. You don't necessarily have to do that. Yeah, or you could just uh, even wait for them to come towards you, them to attack, then um, press circle to dodge them. Um, or there's a bunch of gadgets you can use. Or like, because for the most part, the the spider uh, suit that I used, or the ability from one of the spider suits, was just the electricity. Like, if I had a large group of people, I'd just press L3 and R3, and I, you know, have stunned like 15 people there, and then just kind of uh, chip away at them one by one. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, and with like stuff like the the uh, spider suit abilities as well, you know, it gives you loads of options in how to handle uh, large groups of people so uh, I like that and I think there's a good enough variety in the different types of uh, enemies that you encounter that it keeps the, the combat um, fresh um, the story I, I, I'm i not um, you know comic book man I'm not Spider-Man fan Spider-Man, Spider-Fan um, so like the story as far as I could see was fine I enjoyed it I, I liked what they did with Miles as a character uh, I think that whole arc was um, was really well put together. Uh, they did, I think, a pretty good uh, a pretty good attempt at using uh, a large group of uh, Spider Man's enemies over the years, and uh, and kind of actually getting uh, use out of all of them. And it didn't feel forced, it didn't feel clunky to me from a narrative perspective. Um, so I was fine with that. I never really understood, like, early on, there's a bit where you deal with, um, I think it's Shocker. Uh, no, it's not Shocker, it's, oh God, I can't remember, it's the guy in the bank. Um, who was that? Uh, was that not Shocker? May have been. He was wearing a suit, so it was probably Shocker. But, like, there's a bit where there's, um, a, a kind of small card or a small icon that shows, like, the, I presume it's the Sinister Six. Um, but I was like, okay, so does that mean I'm going to be taking like each one of these out throughout the, the course of the game? But that didn't really seem to have any impact or any point to it. So that confused me a little bit. Um, but I think overall, like, absolutely the, um, the story arc of, um, Dr. Octavius and Peter Parker, I think is very well put together. Um, mm. I don't know, um, again, not having, much history with Spider-Man lore. I don't know if that's ever an angle they took with Spider-Man and uh, Peter Parker and Dr. Octavius, but I think... Uh, Yeah, it's not an unfamiliar take, but what it is is I think they... They fucking stayed their hand a lot more than kind of any other version of that story I've ever seen because people who get the Doc Ock character really just want to get him in the, the robot arms as quickly as possible. Uh, and I like I really appreciate just how long they tease that out for and how long that Octavius just seems like a great guy. Yeah. Um, and like, I assume you notice as well after I say it on the show that like, if you come back, if you keep coming back to the lab throughout the game and you look around every time there's like a tiny bit more of a hint that something else is going on. Sure. Which is like, I, I really appreciate because... One thing comics, well, Marvel and DC comics in particular, aren't exactly known for is a huge amount of subtlety. <laughs> um, and I, I, I do think they're really subtle. Another character they're really subtle with throughout this game is Norman Osborn. Yep, yep. Um, a, a really refreshing take on him. Um, and there's a couple of, between Green Goblin and, and a couple of other enemies that you would expect to see in a spider-man game they managed to hold a lot of that stuff off 
because I think they knew they had a winner on their hands and some of the stuff, uh, I don't know if you'll agree, some of the stuff they set up in the the final stretch of that game uh, for a potential Marvel's Spider-Man 2 has me wanting that game quite soon. Yeah, I, I think they've done a, a very good job of setting themselves up for uh, a, uh, a sequel. Um, and I'll tell you what, that, that fucking game, it got a tear out of me at the end. It actually, it, it got me. It actually got quite emotional at the end there. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think Spider-Man is a game that um, I could see being in my top 10. I don't think it's um, a top three game for me. Um, but no. I do think that uh, for the time I had with it, um, I was never too bored. Like, from beginning to end, swinging around that city is a very, very enjoyable thing to do. And again, mm. with, like, the, the uh, combat, there's a fluidity uh, to it that they they absolutely nail. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Spider-Man is a good game. Yeah, we'll trash it out towards the end of the year, because I think, bar like, I, I'm pretty much feeling the same as you about it. I don't know how Barry and Jack feel. To me, it's the way I describe it, Mark, is I think it's a game of the year, but not game of the year. That seems fair. And there are two very obvious candidates in the next few weeks that may end up being the game of the year for me. Yeah, boy. Oh, man. It never ends, does it? It never ends. Oh, man. This this closing stretch of the year is going to be an absolute killer. (laughs) Um, Anyway, right. That's uh, what we've been. uh, That's what you've been playing. Um. I, my friend, now this is only going to be loose early impressions because I'm only maybe two hours in. But uh, I have started playing uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Okay. So this is the third of the rebooted uh, Tomb Raider franchise that started just with Tomb Raider. Uh, then we had Rise of the Tomb Raider a couple of years ago, which uh, unfortunately the our cutoff is typically December 1st for Game of the Year. Um it just missed out on that it was out like right before christmas and would have strongly featured on my list for 2016 had it uh made it under the cutoff uh really enjoyed that game i think it did things uh, a lot better than the the first three uncharted games did since that uncharted 4 has come out uh, and that was fantastic um and now we've got shadow of the tomb raider and mark when i saw this come out i had had the pre-order down because again we've talked about on the show that i I tend to the games i know i'm definitely going to get and play i I tend to try and pay off a bit in advance and like by kind of by bleeding out a fiver at a time or a tenner at a time out of my account i i tend to be able to get the games i want without feeling as hard hit in the pocket uh, when i plan this long term so i i had this pre-ordered but hadn't picked it up uh and i was seeing the reviews start to come in and people were saying disappointing not great things like that uh very average and i was like oh fuck uh i'm I'm not pleased about this because i i i I was okay i was a bit lukewarm on the first one i love like i said i love that rise of the tomb raider and i was hoping uh, this would kind of live up to that billing. And I got to say, Mark, from the first two hours, unless things fall off a little bit of a cliff, I think it's I think the game's greatest flaw is that it's essentially more of the same. And it depends on what your um, expectations were going into Rise of the Tomb Raider uh, or into sorry, into Shadow of the Tomb Raider. 
if you were expecting another leap in quality like there was between Tomb Raider to Rise of the Tomb Raider, then I can see that you'd be a little bit disappointed because an equivalent jump in quality would have made would mean that Shadow of the Tomb Raider would have to have been one of your games of the year if it made a, a similar or kind of like um, jump in quality. Now, I came into it with a more realistic, well, they've hit on a formula that works now. These games only these games come out every two years, and that's not a for a big open, not quite open world, but open-ish adventure game with the kind of moving parts they have. That's not a lot of time. So in the back of my head, I kind of said, right, what this is going to be is a, a slightly more polished, slightly sharper version of rise of the tomb raider and with those expectations in mind i i say this a couple of hours in um those expectations have been met um so i i think it's a very good game uh i think it's possibly now i will say a little bit of a caveat on that uh shout out to sidlow um a caveat on that is that i didn't start playing it until after what people were reporting as hilarious glitches uh, seem to have been patched out. So I haven't seen any of the shit people were posting in the first couple of days. Um, the version of the game, the, the latest version of the game, the one I've been playing, um, it, it just seems like a, a almost like a full game-sized expansion for Rise of the Tomb Raider. And that, that's A-OK with me. I think it's still a, a really visually striking game. Maybe that's kind of not not quite on the level of a naughty dog game where you remember there was picture, there were screenshots coming out of that uncharted four game where you're like, this looks like a photograph. Yeah. Um, especially in Madagascar, the big open section of that game, you're like, what the fuck? So it's not quite at that level, but you know, it's not hugely far off either. There's a screenshot I posted on my Twitter account last week. And I might tweet it out from the link to the cast account uh, at some stage just for context that was just me in my first um proper tomb and just the way that game engine deals with um shafts of light and the refraction of light and water and things like that it's a, just a gorgeous looking game um it still it still feels good and intuitive like rise of the tomb raider did um, I haven't got into any of the challenge tombs yet because I'm not very far into the story. The challenge tombs are my favorite part. I think those are ju- just as giant puzzles uh, are fantastic. I know there are people, Mark, who rave about the puzzles in tombs in Uncharted games, but I've never been wildly taken by those. Um, and the the ones in the Tomb Raider games seem to be they take the best parts of the Uncharted puzzles and then they take the kind of traversal puzzle element that old Tomb Raider games like to have. And the combination of the two of those uh, makes for some very entertaining passages in, in these games. And it, like I said, not in the challenge tombs yet where the difficulty is ratcheted up that bit more. But just in, in the course of going through this this first big tomb, uh, quite enjoying it again. I think this is a game where... It's one of those ones that may cruelly, I'll have to look as I populate my list on our spreadsheet, but it may be one that's too good for the ham sandwich keen award. 
for our okayest game of the year but not good enough to make my final 10. And I think if it doesn't make my final 10, I don't think it's making any of your final 10s because I don't think... Uh, maybe maybe Jack, but I don't think you or Barry are as high on... like As eager to play these new Tomb Raider games as I was, shall we say. No. I don't um, think this will be one you'll be rushing out to buy before, say, like maybe next summer it might be in the PlayStation summer sale and you might be tempted. That, yeah. that seems like uh, how it, you would get it. It sounds like we're going to need another category to fit in between that uh, 7 out of 10 uh, category. I know, yeah. We're just going to be like... I'm trying to drop categories out. <laughs> such, such is the dynamics of game of the year. But yeah, that's that's my early impressions. I'm going to keep kind of... It's not one... Because I've already got a flavor for it, I'll get about four or five more hours into it so that I get a proper... I can I can form proper assertions as to how I feel about the game. And then I, I think this might be one that in the week and a half when uh jesus not even a week and a half now it's it's literally eight days in eight days when uh red dead redemption comes out seven as most of you are listening to this uh it'll probably go on the back burner and uh the way my new place of employment works it sounds like i'm going to have the week before and the two weeks after christmas off um so tomb raider seems like the perfect uh christmas time I, I have nothing to do except veg out onto the couch sort of game. Um, so so that may be where that gets consigned. It's through no fault of its own, but just because with what we do here at Link to the Cast, um, there are more pressing concerns at the moment in the form of Red Dead and Hitman. And do you know what I forgot until today? Fucking Smash Brothers is coming out as well right before Christmas, but I think I'm, I'm going to put the cutoff slightly before uh, smash brothers because I, I think i'm going to be the only one giving smash brothers some love on game of the year anyway so yeah, there's no well, real point I, I downloaded Mega Man 11 last night so i started that briefly um and also uh purchased the end is nigh finally um but i've also seen that like they've got mark of the ninja on the switch which is a game i've been wanting yeah. the switch since the switch came out guacamelee um, is on the switch there's now. guacamelee and there's guacamelee 2 that came out this year which i need to play so yeah Yep, 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 yep. Video games, yeah. huh? I they... think, um, I, yeah, I think the only other game I'll probably start before the end of the year um, is one that I've had kind of on the radar since we talked about this on the chat, I think, in, in our little uh, WhatsApp gr- uh, chat. Um, and that's the, the Gardens Between Us, the, the little puzzle game. Um really charming looking one that that kind of i saw the trailer around e3 and and kind of circled that in my head I, I think i'll get to that but i think apart from red dead and hitman uh and getting a bit further into tomb raider and st- at least getting a feel for yakuza kiwami 2 like all of it four to six hours of a taste oh and i still uh, need to play donut county oh yeah sure do <laughs> um, but apart from those aforementioned games I don't think I'm getting too much more started by the end of the year, and I don't want to put too much pressure on myself to start other yeah. stuff. I, a legitimate question. Uh, do you think Donut County could be in your top ten? Uh, uh, put your silly trousers on. It could be. It genuinely could be. Uh, um, I definitely need to play them. I'll have to think about it. Like, In terms of... You'll see when you play it that in terms of the mechanics, it's not doing anything like... 
it's very much a I don't think this game exists without Katamari Damacy. Um it's that kind of uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. gameplay is switch off the brain, uh chill kind of stuff, nothing too complicated. Uh but on the strength of the writing alone, uh I think this will probably feature on my list and if it gets knocked off my top 10 it'll only just barely get knocked off sure um i I definitely want to put it forward for a couple of things this year um yeah anyway shall we talk about the news my friend come on let's do it news on the mark Mark, this seems like a game that is right up your fucking alley. Um, this is one I saw earlier in the year because it's out on Steam already. And I kind of, <laughs> you're the same as me and I fucking know well you are before I even ask you. But you're the sort of person who will see a cool new game come out on Switch, immediately realize that that game is going to be fucking excellent on Switch and then forget about it until it comes out on Switch. Yes. Pretty much. And that is exactly what happened with this game. It's called Moonlighter, uh, coming from Digital Sun Studios. Uh, and it is a dungeon-crawling action RPG. Um, by day, you are a mild-mannered man running a shop. And by night, you go down into dungeons and go through uh, some incredibly cool-looking combat to basically get loot that you then populate your store with. So it's got the kind of, it's got the the two sides of like a, a Stardew Valley or, or something like that, where Stardew Valley has the by day you're doing the farming and then by evening you go up to the caves and, and start getting some loot to help you get better stuff. So the game seems to put, uh, I haven't really, short of trailers and hearing that it's a pretty damn good game, um, I haven't really looked too much into it, but it seems like, you there is equal weight put on you being a very good shopkeeper and you being very good at the combat in this game uh and i like the look of it a lot i think the art style is quite charming not a million miles off like a stardew valley or something like that it's it seems to be it, uh, like an animal crossing meets binding of isaac which is yeah you know why not it's definitely <laughs> i appreciate it's got some some pastel colors going on in there oh it's gorgeous um, it's really i like pretty. the yeah, the animation of the sprites is really cool. Um, it's not just kind of uh, like a Stardew Valley where they're, it's very... You could actually make this game run on a SNES. <laughs> um, I, I don't think you can do that with this just because of the, there are some relatively... Uh, for what the, the SNES could do, some relatively complex animations going on, like even the resting animations, everybody's moving around a bit, or you see in the trailer, people sweeping on the ground or doing a dance and the different body parts are moving. Um, yeah, this game, it looks right up your street, and the the way it's presented looks like a game that I, I might well try out myself as well. Um, have, have you seen this game before or was me putting it in the agenda the first time it's come on your radar? You putting it on the it? agenda was the first time I'd been made aware of this. Um, so let's have a look. The original story came out uh, last month by the looks of it. Uh, yeah, the, the yeah. game itself came out on Steam earlier in the year, as far as I know, like in spring maybe, I yeah, want to so say. I completely missed that. This game has, has not been on my radar at all. Uh, but having a look at it, yep, I mean, it looks... You know, from a, a design aesthetic, like something I would play, and uh, the concepts 
that's uh, it's you know it's got that kind of dungeon crawling action thing going on, but with this sort of shopkeeping RPG element, which is a really unique spin on it. And yeah, um, I'm I'm all on board with that. Um, yeah, I, uh, this is something I'll probably check out. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. So that's Moonlighters making everybody wear it out the fifth of November. So that's that's coming around quite soon. So if you're looking for this, maybe the one mark where uh, we've talked on the show before about how I usually pick up like a 3DS game or something for the holidays for when I go home. Yeah. Um, and th- this <laughs> like may you need your 3DS anymore. Yeah, I know. This will be the one. I've, I'll pick this up on Switch and then I'm off uh to the races mark a game i'm so so fucking excited for hitman 2 it's coming out in in, uh, it'll be three weeks tomorrow as we're recording this um we'll have two weeks red dead and then hitman 2 is out i'm so fucking excited for this game people have been getting invited out to io and and coming back with a couple of hours worth of gameplay videos and i'm staying my hand so hard i'm trying to resist watching it so much because i don't i want to try and explore these worlds by myself and not figure out like opportunities or anything like that short of what i've seen the odd trailer um but fuck oh my god everything i hear about this game like i love that I'm going to be able to go through loads of levels straight away. I love that they've promised that there are going to be regular content drops, uh, either in the form of new maps or the elusive targets are coming back. And I think I'm going to make a better um, a better effort to do some of the uh, the elusive targets and challenges this time around. Um, and another cool thing that I were doing that they didn't necessarily have to do is that if you buy Hitman 2, all of Hitman 1 is included in Hitman 2. So if you somehow don't already own hitman one you're getting two games for the price of one essentially in that and that's a pretty cool deal but mark the reason we're talking about this game now apart from my goddamn hype levels being through the roof is that the first elusive target has been revealed for hitman 2 now you thought that maybe they had peaked with the elusive target of gary Busey in the first game but my friend they have they have cast the man synonymous with dying in movies that's right alec trevelyan ned stark boromir himself sean bean is your first elusive target in hitman 2 and that's fucking great i'm i'm looking forward to uh arguing with you again about why i think whatever game I think is uh, Game of the Year, and then you, Jack, and Barry all confirming that Hitman 2 is actually Game of the Year. I can, I, is, I can already see Hitman it happening. Hitman is so good, man. No, I, I, I love Hitman, don't get me wrong. Uh, and I think that uh, Sean Bean is uh, is fantastic casting. Because I think as well... One of, one of your nation's greatest treasures. Yeah, I know, right? We are lacking for them these days. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see how Hitman 2 is going to do, because... As excellent as the original Hitman did, there is the simple fact that the game didn't sell uh, as as well as. Like, I I don't know whether it's that we were in some sort of um, gaming journalistic Twitter bubble where we were all like, "Well, this game is fucking incredible," so everyone must yeah. obviously be, be be playing it, and it just obviously wasn't the case. I I think you can narrow it even more to like the giant bomb bubble. Yeah. <laughs> That's also another way you could look at it. Um, because we're also, like, the only people on the internet are like, fuck yeah, windjammers. Yeah, I mean, like, if you say Sheik Zanzibar to me, then obviously... <laughs> if you start thinking about the magic of the Sahara. <laughs> exactly, or Helmut Kruger, then I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah and even like and if giant bomb hadn't championed the original hitman as much as they had then you know god knows how uh, it would have done so taking the initiative of, of seeing what they did with with gary Busey in, in the first season and saying all right we need to do something more with that uh and and you know i i don't know how much of a draw sean bean is going to be but it's i i think it's a smart move to do i think it's better to do it than not to do it to get um someone you know pretty well known uh to to be in the game so yeah i, I mean in i think fuck it they should just go all out now and just i don't know get fucking um just all manner of, of nonsensical type people. Like, get a, get a James Nesbitt. I don't know. Get a... Yeah. And do you know what? No better studio to pull something mad like that out. Um, this game, like, it's not one... People don't... Outside, again, the giant bomb universe, people don't talk about just how fucking funny that game was. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like, stone-faced Agent 47 posing as a drummer and doing an epic drum solo in that one mission yeah. or... Just the satisfying, the satisfying thunk of a soup can off the head, things like that. It was just a very just bizarre and rewarding experience. That first one. Yeah. So um, I, I do worry that to. I, I worry that um, that Hitman Two, like or the original Hitman series, was a kind of lightning in the bottle moment, and uh, I worry that Hitman Two will still be excellent, but. It's either going to be more of the same, which is fine to some degree, um, or it goes wildly off and does something mad, which I don't think will be the case. I think it will just be that it will do more of the same with a few extra bells and whistles. Um, And so I can only hope that where maybe for people like us that have already played the first series, that we enjoy the second series for what it is, even if it does feel like more of the same. But it it gets more people on board that had heard about the original and... Um, maybe didn't pick it up first time round, so that yeah, would be. I wonder. Be I, I'm also, I'm also interested to see that by dropping all the core missions at the same time instead of the monthly thing, will that get more traction? Will more people be talking about it? Yeah. Or did it benefit more from giving people a whole month to try and accomplish the challenges? Um, like personally, just the way I play these games. Uh, I think it'll be nice for me to have all the missions and that I can kind of blitz through the main campaign and then one by one go back um, and try and start accomplishing some challenges. But again, I I suppose everybody's different and it's, uh, you know, it's a... It's a noble strategy for them to try and do something a little bit different when I know it disappointed a little bit, but it's still they they cultivated a very, very loyal fan base with that first one. So they are to be commended for, you know, trying something different with their release schedule here for, for Hitman 2. But yeah, uh, circle one in, in the, the calendar there for that. And I, I really like as well, if, if you haven't seen this trailer that uh, he, Sean Bean essentially references uh, his role as Alec Trevelyan uh, with a line that he he said, he, I even managed them uh, to make them think I'd been blown up. Uh, and now for me, Mark, that has confirmed that the Hitman universe and the James Bond universe are concurrent. That is canon. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. And I am excited for you trying to assassinate Odd Job as a, an elusive target uh-huh. uh, later next year. Um, moving on anyway from that because I could talk about Hitman all fucking day 
Here's one that I, I'm kind of, I don't know how you feel about this, Mark, but I think it's a bit of a crock of shit. So <laughs> being openly political in games is bad for business, says the developer of The Division. Um, Alf Condelius, which is the, I think is the best name I'll read out loud this week, um, has said it's a balance because we cannot open be openly political in games. So, for example, in the division, it's a dystopian future, and there is a lot of interpretations that it is something we see the current society moving towards, but it's not. It's a fantasy. It's a universe. Uh, and a world that we created for people to explore how to be a, a good person in a slowly decaying world. But people like to put politics into that. And we stay away from those interpretations as much as we can because we don't want to take a stance in current politics. Now, Mark, there's there's a lot to unpack here. And this is something that genuinely I, I've heard. There was a not too long ago, there was a waypoint podcast uh, everybody should check out waypoint stuff but waypoint i believe did a, a proper full podcast episode about you know what is the role of politics in video games um and this kind of these two competing schools of thought that some people feel you need to inject your politics into a game to add that sense of authorship to it and to make some social commentary uh versus the people like uh our, our friend Alf here, who is saying that he doesn't want to. Now, personally, as somebody who keeps up with politics and current affairs and has a lot of takes and studied history and things like that, my tendency, as I said at the start of this, is to say that this statement is a crock of shit um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first being is, is that you're trying to have your cake and eat it by making a game like the division which definitely does as you said like heavily allude to what sort of political situation may have led to a decaying world like this um and then the other reason is that i would ascribe to the theory that most things but particularly in artistic mediums it is literally impossible not to be political uh, in things like this um, because even a deliberate attempt to not bring politics into something is a political stance by itself but also imagine setting a game in washington dc and yeah, then claiming it's not political it's, yeah 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 it's it, like i it's said a it's, trying chin to have, scratcher. it's trying to have your cake and eat it and it's you it, it smacks to me of something like maybe this game this is a bit tinfoil hatty, but maybe this game did have more of a political sentiment and then they saw the kinds of things that have happened in the last year or so with games that were trying to make a political statement getting shit on by the man babies of the world and they just went, ah, look, we want no part of that. The one in particular I'm thinking of is... Far Cry they, 5. Far Cry 5 yeah. and the complete pulling back on that. Um, I think very much they are trying to have their cake and eat it. And I think even deciding to be deliberately apolitical is a political stance by itself. So you can't, by definition, in these kinds of cases, like obviously there's, you know, smaller, simpler games that, that, that definitely aren't political and they're not taking a political stance by not putting politics into it. But this kind of like games that are set in a... a a portrayal of a dystopian version of a realistic world in the future 
that involve kind of interpersonal relationships and a sense of uh, how did the world get like this and trying to restore law and order or deal with law and order in these kind of worlds. It's fucking impossible to cut politics out 100 percent. And even he admits in his statement that there are interpretations and that they're alluding to things in it. so you're not keeping politics out of it by having those illusions and those things that can be interpreted that way. You're just kind of what you're doing in my estimation and and stop me if you disagree, Mark, is that you're you're trying to get as close as you can to making a political statement, but you don't have the fucking I, I don't know if courage is the right word. The stones. The, yeah, basically the stones to incur the wrath of the scum of the earth by coming out with a political statement one of the the games of the last kind of 12 to 18 months that got almost undiluted praise for its just brazen political stance and it's not it shouldn't be a political stance but here we are in 2018 and these things are political stances again but wolfenstein 2 coming out with a fuck the nazis ad campaign like that shouldn't be a thing that's controversial or, or controversial or a political stance or something that anybody is arguing about, but it fucking is. I, um, I, I think that um, what's going on here, uh, and agree with me or not, but this feels very much like someone taking what I like to call the boogie stance of being as as, as centrist as possible to try oh, and oh, that dude uh, to try. I know, right. To try and uh, not agitate maybe the, anyone. Maybe there were some benefits from the Holocaust, yeah, you guys. I, I, that I know, fucking right. yeah, yeah. Whew, that's so, gonna feature in one of our awards this year. <laughs> Guess which one? <laughs> uh, copy, control, uh, copy and paste that for me into my section. Um, <laughs> and in the process of trying to not piss anyone off, you end up just pissing more people off. Um, yeah, it's it's weird to have like if you have a game like Ukulele and you're saying yeah I, I don't think this has a any kind of um, political background to it I'm more inclined I'll, to go well yeah sure all right I Mark, can maybe see why I'll have you know that Lely is an anarcho communist and if you can't see that then I I don't know what to say but I I, I see that as more of a stretch than a game about you know armed government uh, militia so that's just that's just me yeah uh, that was an interesting take um that i think is uh, wildly inaccurate but hey maybe he was making this game the whole time and he didn't think he, there was any kind of political statement being made maybe so um, moving on, it's been a while since we've had a gate to talk about, a, a big kind of scandal where a developer has put foot in mouth. But uh, here's Rockstar, uh, who are just about to release the most anticipated game of, of this year and maybe the last few years in Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, and they got in a little bit of hot water on the week we were taking off. Um, and I'll just read the initial statement because there's been... Um, hold on. There is, uh, where is the original story here? My apologies. Ah, yeah, I don't have the original quote. But basically, this statement came out in almost a celebratory tone a couple of weeks ago uh, about people um, from Rockstar, uh, Dan Hauser, uh, the the head honcho over there, praising the fact that, uh, or seeming to praise that people were working 100 hour plus weeks and Jesus, this is a thing that, Mark, like, read the temperature of the fucking room. Uh, Telltale Games just shut down and the stories of kind of 
borderline abuse of employees and a studio living almost in a constant state of crunch and out comes this sort of a statement and and as a guy who works uh, like not directly for developer or anything like that, but like uh, who has worked on the periphery of the industry um this, this had to have uh hit you like a block in the side of the head with how dumb it was uh, yeah i mean I, I i'm sure that we'll get more that come come out of this and we've already seen um uh, people trying to kind of say hey look this isn't um we're talking over a couple of weeks where crunch was happening and it's every couple of months that either a studio or a person or something is said something is is reported um about you maybe an ex-employee says i worked at this studio and there was crunch of 100 hours a week or whatever and we go through this every couple of months um and it's this thing that I don't really know what to say at this point because it just we keep running in circles of um, studios being under fire because they are having these crunch periods. Yet um, studios seemingly keep um, going into this practice, whether it's due to just being poorly mismanaged, as in the case with the likes of Telltale's, um, or uh, just a, a game. I mean, you look at what Red Dead Redemption 2 looks like and the, the sheer scale and scope of what that game is going to be. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were levels of, of crunch, um, whether those uh, hours were being demanded by Dan Hauser or where, whether they were just um, the people working on the that this project that's you know, are so invested in it and spent so much of their lives uh, and time working on this project that they're happy to um, concede everything else to, to try and get this game finished. Um, mm. So, I don't know. And obviously, you know, it's it's awful and no one should ever be uh, forced to work additional hours against their will. Um, certainly not without being... Um, entitled to some uh, pretty hefty uh, perks whatever they may be um, and, and you know like for me I've been guilty of, of spending additional time doing odds and sods and whatever just because I wanted to just because it, 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 I felt it was the thing I had to do yeah you weren't under pressure to no, do it from no. your employer so uh, I'm not surprised this has come out um, and I'm not surprised it's blown up as the way it has because it always does um, and I expect that we'll get plenty of uh, people saying, you know, we, we look back and we reflect on how um, what our what our business practices are and what our, our management of our um, employees is like uh, to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. Um, and then we'll go through it again in in another three months. Um, so I just I don't find this to be anything um, shocking or just surprising because it just it, the only thing, thing that's that shocking happening. to me is the timing um again like the game's coming out soon and someone somewhere is is going to make a point and if dan howes hadn't anything someone else would have said something so yeah it doesn't surprise me it was stupid it was phenomenally stupid but uh i don't exactly think that this is going to affect sales or uh anything kind of in the long-standing 
position that Rockstar uh, finds themselves com- comfortably sitting in. Now, Dan Hauser has come out since, and he's tried to walk back that statement and mean that like the hundred hour plus weeks was particularly in re- like was more precisely in reference to just him and the other kind of like higher ups in in Rockstar, and they were taking it all like they weren't pressured to do it and things like that, but. It, it's still, I think, at best, a very poorly timed comment, given given the recent news of, of the likes of a Telltale Games. And we we did not too long ago had that Jason Schreier book that you read that was all about studios like in the run up to games coming up and like the horror stories of of crunch coming out of those studios. Yeah. Um, and even studios, this isn't one where I'm trying to like paint Rockstar alone with this brush. A lot of studios are guilty of it. A lot of my favorite studios are guilty of it. I, that book, doesn't it, has stories about CD Projekt Red uh, in the build-up to Witcher 3 coming out and the hor- horrific crunch period they had as well. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, but anyway, yeah, you don't have any final takes on that story before we move No, on? I don't really have any hot takes on this. Um, cool. Because, again, like... There'll be a big game that'll come out uh, in, say, April of next year, and this will all happen again. So it's it's terrible, shouldn't happen, but it's going to keep happening. So, yeah. Um. Anyway, moving on. Bit of sad news here for anybody who is a fan of uh, '90s Italian football or was part of the Pro Evo is better than FIFA generation that I was, and that's uh, Peter Brackley, the voice of Pez, the voice of Gazetta Football Italia commentary. Um, has passed away at only age 67, um, sadly, uh, the Brighton and Hove Albion man. Um, he did the commentary on the matches. His, his voice, for anybody that lived in the UK or Ireland, uh, his voice absolutely synonymous with Italian football and like, a lot of people who were uh, tweeting their commiserations, their condolences, were hashtagging uh, the tweet, Ravinelli. Uh, because just to see that the likes of Totally Football Show and other podcasts and other broadcasts this week just uh, playing reels of his commentary and just listing off some of those legendary Italian names like Ravinelli or Viali or Vieri or Del Piero or anything like that just brings a kind of rush of nostalgia pouring back in. And he was, of course, uh, most relevantly to our program, the voice of um, Pro Evolution Soccer during what many people would call its glory period from PES 2 in 2002 to 2006 and Pro Evo 6, which I think for a lot of people may have been the um, the, the apex of, of Pro Evo's popularity for a lot of people um, with his colour commentator, Trevor Brooking. Um, I, now... <laughs> I, I used to slag off a lot of the 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 commentary cues uh, were kind of a bit as we call it in Ireland Shkaways on a uh, on Konami uh, Konami's part. There would be kind of random times where the ball would go out for a throw in, and the commentators would declare it was a penalty. But the actual tenor, the the actual content of the commentary, always and and part of that maybe because I'm a '90s child as well. Um, it, having peter brackley there with trevor brooking it just it it felt like i was watching the the highlights of a match on 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 gazetta football italia and and he'll be sorely missed um were were you a football italia guy back in the 90s mark yes absolutely i i remember watching channel four um and it's part of what my fondness for 
the 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 Guardian Extra Football podcast was for all those years uh, of AC Jimbo. Um, so yeah, the really really sad story, and um, you kind of reminded me there. This is a bit of a tangent, but talking about like in-game commentary, uh, and I actually instead of going to football, I immediately went to wrestling as I want to do, and those like early SmackDown games where you'd have two wrestlers in the ring and just the uh, just Michael Cole and Taz just spouting out absolute random nonsensical lines that are not associated with anything that's going on in the ring but um, if stone cold hits the stone cold stunner <laughs> it's all over and yes the clearly like just stitching together of three or four different lines yeah it's the it's you know the, the it's it reminds me very much of the simpsons bit with the atlanta falcons yeah 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 <laughs> all the uh the smoothness and grace of sandpaper yeah um anyway uh here is something that I both have been constantly expecting since the PS4 came out and also a certain part of my brain thought would never happen. Uh, from early 2019, Sony will let you change your PSN ID name. Um, so people who just can I just say, think... Can I just say, there yeah. should be a no-clip documentary just specifically on this fucking fiasco alone of how it has taken this long. Yeah, there used to be, right, one of my favorite things on the old IGN podcast beyond the PlayStation commentary was a feature called Please Let Us Change Our Usernames. And it was people who would come in with the story about how, man, I thought this was a really good idea at the time, or I thought this was really funny. Or more often than not, you got people who were like, yeah, when trophies came along, I had to like set up my profile i just put in a filler username not realizing i couldn't change it um didn't think online multiplayer or trophies were going to take off as much as they did and now it's 10 years later and i'm stuck with this fucking name please help me i'm ass toaster 97 um and this was like a weekly feature for months and months and months uh, just Greg oh, Miller trying man. to bully Shu Yoshida into making this happen. Uh, and finally, it has. Uh, there'll be a beta soon for the um, the PlayStation Preview Program members. I don't know how the fuck you even get into that. What sort of golden ticket you need. Uh, but people who are testers for betas. You need at least 20 platinum trophies. <laughs> well, I have 27 of the fuckers. And there I got you go. You're fine, fine then. Some bitch. Um, well, well, here's the thing. fucking use for him. Here's the thing, there's always a fucking wrinkle. Always a fucking wrinkle, my friend. Uh, also of note, this feature only works with PS4 games originally published after the 1st of April 2018. And a large majority of the most played PS4 games that were released before this date. What that means is there's a... F I, I would say, just based on how vague... Sony are being about what that exactly means. I would say, Mark, there is a fair to midland chance that if someone changes their username, this is going to fuck their trophies right up if that's the thing that they care about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. I, there is no way that this whole thing doesn't end in someone's uh, profile just being utterly destroyed. And I can't wait. Like a lot of people, a lot of developers, like Sony have remained relatively tight lipped, uh, except for saying repeatedly that it's more difficult than you'd think. But, um, I mean, I, some don't, developers... actually, I don't dispute that that actually is probably the case. Yeah. Um, it, because anything that was built or designed but didn't have, you know, something like this in mind 
whether it's just from a, a database perspective or just how it, it links up to all the other parts of your profile, I'm not surprised at all that, that there are issues with doing this. Yeah, I suppose the maddening thing is that the PS3 came along at the same time as the Xbox 360, who figured this out much quicker. Well, again, um, this all started with the PlayStation 3, and there's a lot of things about the PlayStation 3 uh-huh. that but, were not thoroughly well thought out. Indeed. Um, and this seems to be a case, what, the, what a lot of developers have said is that it comes from an initial dumb decision when they designed the architecture of the PS3 that there is a surprising amount of, like, if you kind of envision the the username as being a load-bearing pillar for your entire online account, that for some reason changing that puts things into fucking chaos. Now, I would have thought that, this is me with no coding experience, that like in a much more simpler system, a much more simpler much simpler sort of architecture you'd be able to go in and even if it was a load bearing thing that it would fuck stuff up you could even just set the display name to be different whereas kind of under the hood with the different cogs and mechanisms underneath it wouldn't change the original username the kind of like your old account and its username would blend into your new ps4 screen name i think that just gets messy um, oh, like it isn't fucking messy to begin no, with. No, no, it's <laughs> not. I'm not arguing that, but I think that that um, just confuses things further. Yeah, you're trying no... to you're trying to retroactively solve a problem that shouldn't exist. No, is, well, is yeah, the, is the cusp of it. Really, the thing I find surprising is that the way that this has been uh, rolled out with this announcement. Like, I would have thought this was slap bang at an E3 or PSX or some kind of conference because. This is a, a a pretty big thing that uh, gamers have been asking for for, yeah, for many I, years. I wonder to myself if this was going to be a PSX announcement, and when they realized I, they didn't have enough games to actually justify doing PSX this year, they were it. like, "Fuck they, it." They could just... have done. They could have done an hour on this easily. Yeah, <laughs> they could have just reading out those segments from podcast behind. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. I, just, I, I would have tuned Greg in Miller. That. Here you go for an hour live stream. Just go for as the many dumbest names, you names you've found. Yeah. Um, yeah. So glad for Sony users. I don't think I'll be changing my name because of that trophies issue. Because I'm a guy who like I I don't put. No, no. Do you know why we? Do you know why we don't need to change our names? Because we don't have super dumb ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Like in an ideal world where this didn't fuck up anything, I'd probably change it because you get it'll be you'll get one change for free, and then it's going to cost seven pound ninety nine to change it after that, specifically so that people don't take the piss and change it every five minutes. But uh, I think in an ideal world where I could do this once, I'd probably change it to my new Twitter handle just so it's easier to find. Like that kind of like brand synergy going on uh, all over the place. But it's not something that really bothers me because, like you said, we have normal people names. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, all this just means is you're just going to end up with like a thousand accounts that some variation of like Mr. Meeseeks. So, yeah, <laughs> damn right. Yeah. Um, OK, moving on from that. Uh, last bit of news for this week. Uh, just fucking snuck onto the Nintendo Switch online thing was, and this feels like a weird thing to say in 2018, Mark, but there was an up, a content update for the original Legend of Zelda game <laughs> for, the NA, for the NES. What a mad uh, fucking world we live in. Yeah, on, on Nintendo Switch. And what I appreciate about this is we've talked before about how one of the things that really... Uh, doesn't help the NES games in terms of aging well is how just 
fucking difficult they are for some younger kids coming along nowadays who don't remember a time like we do, Mark, where every game felt like a fucking battle sometimes. Yeah. Um, they've basically gone in and added uh, an easy mode to the original Legend of they Zelda. They put a game shark in it is what they've done. Uh, essentially, this version is uh, being called uh, the life, Living the Life of Luxury. <laughs> uh, and all it basically is, it's almost like a pre-order bonus because it's a souped-up version of a game that makes it a lot easier to get going. You start with loads of rupees and items, and you begin with all equipment, including the white sword, magical seals, shield, the blue ring, and the power bracelet. So it's a real, like, huge, hefty kickstart for if you're somebody who doesn't like the difficulty of 1987 adventure games. Uh, this This may be the mode for you to be able to enjoy zelda in peace now i'm sure mark i haven't i haven't looked this up but i'm sure there's some quarter of the internet that is going crazy about going in and tampering with a classic uh but i think i and probably yourself even though we haven't spoken about this before probably fall down on the same side of things like we fell down on when people were giving out about um what was it oh, it was the easy version of of mario is that it's not something you have to do it's just there to make the same game more enjoyable to people who are not as good as you, and there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. I mean, you know me. You have seen me play difficult games. You've seen me fucking yeah. play Cuphead. Um, with that said... Yeah, I've seen I've seen you play games so difficult that I don't even enjoy watching them. <laughs> <laughs> even I don't fucking enjoy playing the original um, Legend of Zelda. Uh, I don't enjoy having to run around the fucking map of the original Metroid having no goddamn clue where I am because it doesn't give you any indication. Like, I'm all for taking original NES games and, and offering a slightly alternative mode that does stuff like this. Fuck it, why not? Because um, it gives incentive to uh, people who weren't even born when the original Legend of Zelda came out. And it's like, hey, here's, here's a version of the game that you might actually enjoy. I think that's a, a wonderful thing to do. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's just, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a really, really cool idea. Let's go now into the home stretch of the podcast, that final feature, the Link to the Cast Book Club, our feature where we talk about an important game from the past that you should play for the first time. Uh, if you haven't already, although that may be a bit difficult with this week's game, uh, or pick up again if it's been a while, take out that old-timey Nokia phone charger, because this week we are talking about Snake. Enough is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane! Everybody strap in! I'm about to open some fucking windows. Snake is the common name. Snake, snake. I'm still trying to decide what the uh, music for this is going to be, which will already have been playing by the time we start talking about this. Uh, snake is the common name for a video game concept where the player maneuvers a line which grows in length, with the line itself being a primary obstacle. The concept originated in the 1976 arcade game Blockade. And the ease of implementing Snake has led to hundreds of versions, some which have the word Snake or Worm in the title, for many platforms. After a variant was preloaded on Nokia mobile phones in 1998, there was a resurgence of interest in the Snake concept as it found a larger audience. There are over 300 Snake-like games for iOS alone. So, I think it goes without saying 
that when we talk about Snake, um, what we're also talking about is the Nokia 3310. Um, now, I don't know if you had one. Uh, yes, I had a 3210 with Snake 1, and I had a 3310 with Snake 2. Yeah, that's exactly the same with me as well. Um, and I had a couple of games, and I can't remember for the life of me what other ones were on there. Um, I can't remember if there was like a, a, a basic version of Breakout on there. I feel like there may have been. But the obvious one is is Snake. Um because of the, you know, the the, it's like Tetris really. There's a there's a, just a pure simplicity to it, um, and it's the kind of game that you can just forever on improving your score. Um, and the only kind of real uh, like random factor is where the um, the new part of the tell that you have to collect or the food that you have to eat, whereabouts on the screen that's going to uh, appear. Um, I think as well, it's it goes without saying that you think about how far along we've come uh, with uh, gaming on on the mobile platform over the last well, it'd be twenty years because yeah, it was nineteen ninety eight that the original state could have been released on um, on the the Nokia devices at the time, uh, and it's it's almost you know you look at um, we were talking about like Red Dead Redemption earlier. And, and how far console games have come along. Um, but it's just as apparent uh, with, with mobile gaming uh, in terms of like the size of the screen and you know how you would actually play a mobile game where you know before you were using the actual um, like physical buttons on the phone to mm. the uh, now you know touchscreen device uh, type experiences that we have. Um, for you, because uh, so, it certainly was the case with me. Snake was a game where, you know, I would watch my friend play it, I'd watch them get a, a, a score, whatever it would be, and then it's right, that's my challenge. Kind of what I would do, end up doing later with um, Jack and Niner with the likes of SSX3 and Trials and whatever else. Was was this a thing for you as well, or was Snake purely just a, a very kind of personal, isolated experience for you? Yeah, so, like, to take it back a little bit, I think we need to appreciate it. The people who weren't there or have kind of forgotten need to appreciate where technology was in 1998. And the very concept of games on a phone was just kind of fucking mind-blowing, to be honest. Um, as simple as they were. Uh, my previous phone before my 3210 that had Snake on it was a Sony Ericsson that literally... The screen was one line. You could fit one line of text across it because all they were intended for, as strange as this may seem in 2018, was to make phone calls. And as a secondary function, like texting was the killer app in the late 90s. That's like that's how far we've come since then. Um, so getting a 3210 and seeing this game snake, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's something that had a huge, like I watched my friends play it and get high scores or, or things like that. But all my friends who, who got phones seem to have a 3210 and all of them seem to at least talk about snake. And it was, uh, kind of, as, as you asked me there, a more personal experience where I was the majority of the time just playing this game by my fucking self. Uh, no one around, just kind of one of those classic 
chewing gum for the eyeball sort of games like a like a tetris or something that was just incredibly moorish the concept was so simple one of the 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 beautiful things about snake is that it has that very old school sensibility of you can show a person this game having never seen it before and within 30 seconds they know what it is yeah and they get they get it completely and it's also Um, one of those kinds of games that as soon as you finish one game you can just go straight back into another yeah, and being able to do this on a mobile phone, like, you know, I this was around the time I got a Game Boy Color as well. 1998, I think I had a Game Boy Color shortly before that or shortly after it. I can't remember exactly when I got my, my 3210. Um, so we were at the kind of the zenith of that um, period where portable gaming was a huge thing for kids like us so we were just on the the crest of the poke wave uh, at the time um so having a phone you know to make phone calls in case of emergencies things like that that now can play a game and I, as i kind of said in the intro to this show this was at a time where you didn't have to charge your phone once maybe sometimes twice a day this was i remember my nokia 3210 is like maybe i would charge it every two days because uh, that's how lo-fi these devices were. Um, but just having that, they kind of, they weren't called apps at the time, but essentially an app uh, and a game on it was, was fucking surreal. And and uh, as we were saying there, the the experience of Snake is very very Moorish. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, for anyone who somehow, if you have been living under a rock, uh, the the concept of Snake uh, is the player controls a dot. Uh, square or objects on a, a fixed square plane um, although this would uh, you know advance over the years uh, as it moves forward it leaves a trail behind resembling a moving snake in some games the end of the trail is in a fixed position so the snake continue, continually gets longer as it moves uh, in another common scheme the snake has a specific length so there is a moving tail a fixed number of units away from the head the player loses when the snake runs into the screen border a tail or other obstacles or itself now the way that I would play the game because I can't remember if it was, it was Snake 2, but they would um, open it up f- effectively so that there wasn't actually a fixed border. Um, you could, yeah, that was that was Snake 2. Yes, yeah, so you would go across the, the right side of the screen and appear on the left side of the screen. Yeah, uh, so Sna- yeah, Snake 1 had you confined to the square that you could see on the, on the screen. Uh, Snake 2 allowed you to, like you said, come back around the other side, you exit the right, you come in the left, you go up the top, you come out the bottom. Yeah, which in that one very simple... Um, change to the mechanic does completely change the way the game played because you were you know free to instead of if uh the square is on the top left hand side of the screen instead of having to make your way up there you could simply if you're on the bottom right hand side of the screen just go off to the right and then appear you know and then work your way up um which then led to obviously your snake getting a lot longer and more uh more uh you know um tricky situations where you're trying to maneuver around your own body as you try and make your way uh, to the next piece to the next square to, to collect um, mm. and that is that is you know the game in a nutshell it's very difficult to uh, provide any more uh, of what the game is because even like Tetris there are certain things you could talk about um, you know hidden elements to the gameplay but with Snake that is pretty much it but it's I, I think we've had a couple of games on here before where they're on here not so much because I think the game is is great by any means or anything, but um, 
you know, it was a game that anyone could play. And it was a game yeah. that anyone who had a mobile phone could play. And it meant that it was a game that... And I, 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 you know, there's no way to know numbers for sure, but you, you know, you're talking about people who don't play video games in the way that you have yeah. people that play like Facebook games or whatever. Um, yeah, it's one of those, we, we'd call them sometimes crossover games that has that appeal that breaks out of the, the video game player bubble. Um, Tetris, which I mentioned before, was one of those where and it comes partly down to the availability on a, of of it on a platform that a lot of people already had in a mobile phone. And part of it comes down to what I said about the, the concept of Snake is so simple that it was definitely one that like my grandmother has only ever really played two games properly in her life. And those are Tetris and Snake <laughs> um, because she's, she's never played to... Half-Life 2. No, funnily enough. Um, but the, the concept is so simple. It, it kind of it's one of those games where it keeps the brain sharp. Uh, as you last longer and longer into a session of Snake and Snake 2, um, it definitely does test. There's a level of strategy to it um, because obviously the, the goal is to not run into uh, part of your body because then it's it, it's game over, buddy. Um, so th- there's definitely an element of strategy to it. It's not just this simple little game that you'll just play for five minutes and put down. There is an incentive to go as far as you can and see how much of the map you can fill up with your body without actually hitting anything. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, you probably uh, would not be surprised to know that due to the simplicity uh, of this game and, you know, how easily um, it could be applied to a phone, that there are uh, a number of different versions of Snake. Um, mm. Now, obviously, there is the, the original Snake, uh, which was uh, implemented back... Uh, on the Nokia six six one one zero, and then obviously the the thirty three ten is is arguably the most famous version, um, which uh, would you know, by that point we were playing Snake two, uh, which included um, all the additional modes that we established. Now, the one other version that I remember reading and seeing about, just because uh, my girlfriend at the time had one of these, was uh, Snake's. Uh, a 3D, ver- 3D version for the N-Gage. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I can imagine that uh, the N-Gage were thinking, right, you know, we are, this is a phone uh, as well as a, an actual gaming device. What is a game that could appeal to the, the mass casual market? And Snakes is, is a, a genius um, option to go with and with the likes of something like Tetris as well. Um, it's a version I've never played. Um, I would imagine, like most things to do with the engage, it's uh, trash. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that and then, might have been on the recent we had talked about them earlier. But Giant Bomb recently did like a two I, or three I watched stream. some of that. I didn't see it on there, but I did watch some of that because I was shit. morbidly curious. Um, and then there was Snake, which was released for Facebook Messenger because fuck it, everything's on Facebook. Um, now, the one game that I haven't played, but I've always seen a lot about, is uh, Sliver.io, uh, which is a massively multiplayer version of Snake. Um, that, wow. Yeah, yeah, that grew uh, pretty significantly in popularity due to, as with most things these days, uh, being uh, streamed by the likes of PewDiePie and whatnot. Um, mm. I don't know if it's a version you're familiar with at all. No, this is literally the first I'm hearing of it, and now I'm very interested. <laughs> well, there you go. There's there's your homework afterwards. Um, yeah, I mean, 
my my biggest thing coming out of this is what the fuck am I going to use as the music for the introduction? Uh, do I just use Snake Eater? That seems like the obvious thing, but we've probably already <laughs> used that for MGS3, so... Uh, I believe we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> but you know what? It's a good enough song, I probably would use it twice. Um, Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I guess we're kind of coming to our end here. Well, here's the thing. So, uh, in 1996, Next Generation ranked it number 41 on their top 100 games of all time. Uh, citing the need for both quick reactions and forethought. So here's a question I have for you. Uh, do you think that Snake is a game that you could uh, arguably put in, like, I don't know, the top 100 games of all time? And if you are putting it in there, is it based on what the game actually is, or is it based on just the... Um, just what it is, what it represents uh, on the face of, you know, mobile gaming? Um... I, I couldn't, argue, if I picked up a list of the 100 greatest games of all time and I saw Snake on there and like anywhere in the mid-table kind of region, I don't think I could argue with it. Because I, um, I think if it's on there, I know why it's on there and it's not specifically yeah. because of it being, you know, this great game. It's it's one of those, like, maybe, uh, and this might be harsh on the game I'm about to mention, but like a Wii Sports. No, where no it's, I, it's, I see where you're coming from. Its position as one of the great games of all time is because, at least partly, just how many fucking people played it. And that's not to say it's a it's a bad game or a poorly made game by any stretch, but just uh, as a personal thing, if I made a personal list of 100 and fucking strike me down now if I ever go through that hassle. Um, but if I made a personal list of, of 100 of my favorite games, I don't know if it would feature because based on my 2018 sensibilities on what I want from a game, I don't think it comes in. That said, something like Tetris still does. Um, but I find there's that bit more strategy and layering to Tetris, uh, for me personally. Um, I wouldn't have it on a personal list. Couldn't disagree with anybody that would have it on theirs though. Yeah, I just, I always have um, an, an admiration for those types of games which have such a, a, a simplicity to them, but have uh, such uh, longevity and lastability in, in how long you can play them for without ever uh, ever getting bored, even though it's it's the one thing that you do uh, with that game. Uh, but just the, the, the core concept of it is so strong, so simple. Uh, just, yeah, uh, Snake, for me, like, it's a game I could pick up tomorrow, and uh, if I had it on my phone, I could easily play um, for, for, you know, 20 minutes at a time if needed. Mm. Um, so, Snake on Switch, coming soon, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some fucking five-quid knockoff version on there already. Um, but yeah, so, for I'm, I'm going to try and do an elevator pitch. Uh, Snake is, uh, in some ways, Snake is an important game of my childhood because, um, you know, it was on the first phone that I ever owned um, and it gave me a way of playing gaming on the go if I didn't have, you know, my uh, Game Boy Advance or, or whatever console at the time. Um, and it's... Uh, Simplicity and the fact that it's a game that, you know, was originally created in some form or version back in like 1976 or whatever, and has, you know, not even mutated through the years, but stood the, the test of time because of simplicity and been implemented onto all these different devices. Like, I'd be curious to see, you know, in terms of 
uh, games that have been on the most amount of devices. I'm pretty sure Tetris probably still has um, that. So. But um, but I'd imagine Snake must be up there as well. Um, mm. So yeah, just a a, a a very important game for maybe different reasons compared to what we may usually have on here. But one that yeah. I felt needed to be uh, to be given the spotlight. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's drawing our podcast for this week to a close, but there's uh, one last traditional bit of business. It is my turn now to say what is going to be our game of the week for episode 127 coming your way, we should hope, next week. Uh, Mark, this is a strange one uh, coming up. Not the actual game itself, but... uh, uh, So, 127 episodes deep, you would get the impression that maybe we've covered most of the important things and any of the glaring, obvious omissions have probably been resolved now and picked up. I just checked our website to be sure of this because I couldn't remember doing it, but it's one of those ones that it felt like we must have done. And I was I was stunned to figure out that we haven't. Um, and and it, it definitely bears talking about uh, coming into uh, a release that's coming out early next year. And uh, just it, for the the kind of snapshot of the time and the genre... Mark, we're going back to 1996 next week, and we're going to talk about a game, and you're going to be surprised we haven't done this, because I was fucking stunned. We're going to talk about Resident Evil. (laughs) Well, I mean, you won't be doing it with me, you'll be doing it with Jack, but yeah, yeah, how the fuck did we miss Resident Evil? You picked Resident Evil 4 at Ah, one stage. Uh, So that's the only entry in franchise we've done, short of me reviewing Resi 7 when it came out last year. But yeah, Kind of fucking surprised we never did that. And then I suppose if you're gone for two weeks, we'll get Jack to pick the week after that. That's see good. if he comes up with something. Well, do you, know what it'll be? do you know what will be the Wednesday after? It'll be Halloween. So you've actually gone very well by picking a spooky game yeah, we, next week. Damn right we have. Right, okay. So that's episode 126 of Link to the Cast in the bag. Um, this podcast is available on... Um, soundcloud itunes and most podcasting platforms if you just search for a link to the cast subscribe rate review tell a friend it all helps and we very much appreciate it the website link to the cast.wordpress.com and link to the cast.eu once i fucking pay for the domain name that i keep forgetting to oh did i give uh, you the money for that by the way uh you did for the soundcloud but i completely forgot about the domain name thing so i have to kind of look back up how much that costs us to renew because i can't awesome. remember cool um, i like giving you money but until then, linktothecast.wordpress.com will get you there, or just search for Link to the Cast on Google. I think we're usually the top search result. I fucking hope so at this point. Um, what, if you want to get in touch with us, drop us an email, linktothecast at gmail.com, our seldom used email address, because social media is the best way to get in contact with us reliably and keep up to date with our content at the same time. Dot com forward slash link to the cast and at link to the cast on Twitter. Individually on Twitter, Mark is at Lithium Project and I am at the day to Dave. Uh, if games aren't your only interest, we've got a couple of podcasts that appear intermittently on the website. The first is the Grap Up, which is a very kind of like it's it's a real redheaded stepchild of a podcast. We only do it a couple of times a year and it's about the wacky world of pro wrestling. Then we've also got the Popcorn Social, which is myself and Jack Lazell's roundup of the latest movies and a couple of our favorites from the past on every episode. These podcasts, plus our weekly Link to the Cast flagship broadcast, are available in the same podcast feed. So one subscription to Link to the Cast on your favorite podcast platform will do the trick. And if there are any episodes you want to go back on a game that you think, oh, they've probably covered that, not Resident Evil, obviously. But uh, if 
there's one you think we probably have covered, search in the archives there and you should still be able to listen to the episode unless I broke the link like a fucking idiot. Anyway, that's episode 126 of Link to the Cast. We shall see you all again next week. I've been Dave Ryan. The man on the line has been Mark Robinson. I gotta go and shut my dog up. Bye. <laughs>